0: Welcome to Attached, a podcast about the loved ones we're attached to and the good, the bad, and the ugly advice about those relationships that maybe we shouldn't be so attached to. We here at Attached want to share ways to enhance your relationships and debunk all of that bad relationship advice using science.
1: Science!
0: Ooh. (laughs) I'm Doctor Patricia Robertson out of the University of Tennessee.
1: I'm Dr. Jacob Priest from the University of Iowa.
0: I'm Dr. Sarah Woods at UT Southwestern. Today we are honored to listen to Jacob Priest bring us something miraculous in popping culture. Then in the academic deep dive segment. It is gonna be miraculous.
1: <laughs> I can't wait to talk about it.
0: Such high expectations. I I want to just continue to raise them humor's sake then in the academic deep dive segment we are going to discuss the academic article developmental changes and parental authority legitimacy and over associations with adjustment a lot of words that i don't understand but i'm sure we'll <laughs> figure those out and in good or bad advice we are going to discuss summer with children oh my it's coming If you have any advice you'd like us to talk about it, please send it in. You can leave us a message at 865-229-6775. Email us at attachedpodcast.com or tweet us, Instagram us, Facebook us, all of the things at Attached Podcast. Or, you know, just go to attachedpodcast.com. Send us a message. Also, please consider becoming a member of the Attached team by going to patreon.com slash attachedpodcast. Also... You guys, we have some merch up on our website, so go check that out. I believe we have stickers and mugs. Show your love for Attached Podcast. But before we get to all of the wonderful stuff we are doing today, again, just hyping the heck out of it. How are you guys doing?
1: So. I may have mentioned this on the podcast before, but we are about to rip out our kitchen and put in a new one. Oh my. Chelsea and I have talked about this a lot, but we're also like, this is a really dumb time. She's going to finish her graduate program. We're expecting a baby in two months and we're going to be about a month, three weeks without a kitchen. So... Needs to eat. I mean, who needs to eat? exactly. So we're kind of... Tomorrow is the day when they come. So we're pulling everything out of the kitchen tonight and we're gonna hunker down and see how it goes <laughs> Jeez Louise. Good luck. it's gonna be it's gonna be a little bit crazy and i think we're going in with some reasonable expectations that it's going to be very frustrating and difficult and we're trying to communicate around those but i am sure we will have our moments it's gonna be remember I jacob
0: an apology goes a long way
1: that's true and to capitalize on those positive experiences yes. that we have right
0: all of the things or or alternatively you can just let chelsea listen to our podcast she'd enjoy that right
1: yeah she would, she would. <laughs> that's exactly what she, wants to, exactly what she wants to that's exactly what she wants to listen to me talk more
0: <laughs> i'm sorry sarah and i are on this too <laughs> woods
2: oh <Well>, i will <laughs> see you a kitchen and raise you a bathroom. (laughs) I believe on a prior episode was it the last one perhaps I discussed how we'd had like disaster in our master bathroom and the sinks ended up in our yard for a month and a half. We are currently in the process of ripping out the rest of our bathroom because I said please don't just replace the cupboard. Just take out everything. Just gut it and start over. So I have this like fantasy scenario about what it's going to end up as but then I keep having to make like choices to like put this thing together and it's just it's a nightmare and in my actually in my mind it's beautiful right. and then I have to make like actual literal choices about like okay well then what, what kind of faucets do you want and I'm like well how many faucets can there be <laughs> apparently <laughs> apparently there are a lot of different kinds of faucets they all cost a lot of money so at this point I'm like garden hose just to stick a garden (laughs) hose through the wall it is it's a really fun experiment also in like how my husband is like allowing me to make a lot of the choices and then trying to sense where he can maybe have some license to like vote yes or no and he realizes voting yes is like the better of the two (laughs) do you like this yes or no
0: yes Yes.
2: The the answer was yes or two totally different tiles in my mind look like the exact same tile in his mind (laughs) so it's a fun adventure
1: we'll see see how we survive remodels yeah
2: yeah i'm way under on the wall tile budget way over on the floor tile budget and i was like i feel like they even out the calculator told me they didn't even out so
0: (laughs) we'll we'll have to see (laughs) perhaps the calculator was lying it's possible it's probable actually (laughs) yeah that little Just. bitch of a calculator. So you guys, let me tell you a little story about how my week's gone. On Monday, a couple of days ago, I was installing some bees and like an absolute idiot, I was watching on these YouTube videos and all of the dudes on the YouTube videos weren't wearing any protection. And I'm like, it'll be fine. <gasps> Wait, bees like honeybees. Honeybees, like yeah. the
2: animals. I know, and I love how you called
1: it installing bees. I didn't know, I know. bees yes. get installed like computer software. <laughs>
0: I don't know how else to say it. I guess you just you put them in their hive. You're hiving them. In them? H- no, that's not the right <laughs> word. I don't. Yeah, I don't feel like. Is that a verb? Yeah, I don't feel know. like. No, that can't be right. Rehoming. Rehoming, re-homing some bees. Yeah, okay. You guys call it whatever you want. I'm going to call it what all of the YouTube videos call it, which is installing me. Anyway, so I'm like, mm, I'm installing them and I'm like doing such a good job, but I'm going to make them super happy. And then they start, surprisingly, when I shake them in, get really pissed. So Monday- That
1: surprisingly was sarcastic, right? <laughs> right,
0: right. I only got like five stings, which isn't really that bad. I was, <laughs> I was fine. But one of them stung me in the corner oh! of my left. Left eye. Oh, ouch. Oh. Patricia. Then this morning... I woke up with pink eye in the other eye. Oh <laughs> my! So gosh. I'm like barely can see, but like have all these things I have to do today. Thankfully, I'm feeling much better than I did this morning, so that's that's good. Wow! <laughs> it's think... been a crazy week for my eyeballs, <laughs> <laughs> and I can't. And I and I of course had to take out my contacts, and my last pair of contacts. Guess what? I can't get. I can't get an eye doctor appointment because like Oh. everybody's on lockdown, oh. so. I'm wearing glasses oh. for the foreseeable future, which isn't the oh. end of the world, but nevertheless. Oh, my goodness. So what are the bees for?
2: Why, honey. why are you
0: installing them? They're for honey. Just,
2: I mean, I realize that's what bees make, but I mean, is there not, it's not for like pollinating all like your apple trees or I don't know, like farm life is mysterious to me. <laughs> no, so.
0: I think it's mainly honey. Like, Yeah, I think it's mainly honey. I mean, I'm sure they'll help pollinate all of that stuff, but we have enough bugs uh-huh. around that, that they would get pollinated anyway. Oh, that's... Was-
2: stupid question but it's mainly
0: for the honey that we're gonna get we're Mm. gonna try I mean honeybees are hard to to do so it's like a learning process and trying to figure it out I've read a bunch of stuff and watched a bunch of stuff so hopefully I'll just execute it well
2: what happens as you learn do you like lose bees like do they start yeah so last year I had a
0: hive and (gasps) they 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 swarmed and left me so the good news is I didn't kill them They just said, (laughs) fuck this, and they left. No um yeah, they left. I figured out what happened was I think we had a I know we had a hornet's nest so the hornet was stealing honey from them and so they just got pissed because they couldn't protect their home well enough and so they just left so I just I launched about I think about 500 dollars worth of bees into the environment. That's
1: good for the environment there needs yeah. to be more bees in the world exactly
0: this, this is the silver lining so this year we're trying it again to hopefully not launch $600 this time because we bought two it was like worth of bees into a little the little mermaids. So. Go forth, ah. do good for the environment. So, you know, each year, hopefully, this one will stick. In the
2: end, though, it still is about food. Your what? What I did this week in the end was still about
0: yeah, 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 (laughs) yeah. Of course, course. the end all be all is always food with me. Also, I love my family. Just so you guys know. First up, poppin' culture. We learn about relationships from friends and families, but a lot of what we think about love and relationships come from what we see in pop culture. So for the first segment, we always like to take a moment to highlight events in pop culture that influence people's lives and how we all view relationships. Jacob, what gloriousness do you have for us this week?
1: So I've mentioned that we're not going to have a Bachelorette or Bachelor in Paradise or Love Island because of COVID-19. But pre-COVID-19, the Bachelor franchise decided to record The Bachelor, Listen to Your Heart. What? (laughs) Which is basically American Idol meets Bachelor in Paradise. What? (laughs) So the premise of this show is that I think it's like the first episode has eight women and 12 guys and they all go and stay in this mansion in California and they're there to find love and to become famous singers. Right. So it's like combining.
0: I'm pretty sure at this moment I hate reality television. (laughs) No, I don't even think I understand it. (laughs) So I know there's a strong reaction. I'm sorry. I'm listening.
1: Go uh, on. So what they do is, instead of going on, like, dates like they would, like, to go out to dinner or something like that, they go to recording studios and they see if they have, like, chemistry by singing together.
0: I mean, I kind of... I mean, at least we get music out of it and not just, like, pure drama, right?
1: It's it's as bad as it sounds, but I do want to... I do think it... Illustrates an idea that I think is important. So oftentimes when we are looking for a partner, we want to find somebody who has similar interests that we do. Sure. That we can do things together. And while I think that's important, I also think that there should be some uniqueness, some difference between partners.
0: Oh, Interesting.
1: In other words, you know, like, you don't want to have somebody. This is one of the things that kind of makes me feel all weird about watching Listen to Your Heart. Like, you have people that they want to give (laughs) Sarah's. You should see Sarah's
2: You should. That's an appropriate reaction.
1: You should feel weird. They are giving their heart and soul to music, right? They're all talking passionately about how much they love their music and how much their music means to them. And they're trying to find somebody that shares the exact same passion. And I think that could be a breeding ground for potential conflict in that whose music is more important or do I make better music than you do? So I think that when you're looking for a partner more broadly, A, don't sign up for Bachelor Listen to Your Heart. Do Bachelor in Paradise or, you know, Love Island. That's what you really want to do.
0: I don't know if that is (laughs) sanctioned by all members of Attached, for the record. I don't know. It might be my
2: favorite advice we've ever given. (laughs) It's so realistic.
1: But I do think that it's important to find a partner that has similar values, shares similar goals and aspirations, but it's also okay to have difference. Because I think when there is difference in a partnership, you have the ability to have conversations across difference that allows you to be potentially more vulnerable, more open, more authentic with your partner and navigate harder situations, which in turn can deepen your commitment and your understanding of each other. So though it might be tempting to, oh, if I can find somebody who loves to do what I do all the time and we'll be perfect together because we'll sing in harmony and everything will be wonderful. I think that's a false sense of security when you're basing A partnership on things you both like to do together because that could change it might be that after you don't get that big record contract after being on listen to your heart you may give up music and pursue another passion so i think you know oftentimes oh this person likes to do the same thing i like to do so that means we might be a good match potentially, but also look for ways in which they are growing as an individual that's different from what you are or who you are or what you want, and then learn how to have conversations around and through those differences.
0: Yeah, I think we were just talking about this a week or so ago that really, you know, what makes for a compatible relationship isn't all of those like similar activities or similar personality types. It's shared values, right? So values are a much broader and bigger concept. And then when it gets down to the minutia of the activities, you don't really have to share all of them as long as you share those underlying values. Yeah,
1: I mean, I think it's important to like jump in and do things that maybe you don't love with your partner because it's important to them. But I also think it's okay to do things that your partner doesn't participate in, to have kind of your own stuff that you do, because that keeps, you know, as Esther Perel would say, that distance can actually keep you connected in a strong emotional way. I love it. Uh, But can I tell you, The Bachelor, Listen to Your Heart, is... The bottom of the barrel. Like we were, we were watching it and we're just like, if it wasn't for COVID-19, we would never be watching this, but we're is at that, that point. Is that true? Is that true? <laughs> maybe, maybe, <laughs> but it is, it's like, they are trying so hard and they've run out of any ideas beyond what they already know. And this just wasn't a good one, but you know, sometimes like hate watching is really fun.
0: Oh, hundred percent. Now we're going to move to the academic deep dive segment and talk about an article titled, Developmental Changes in Parental Authority, Legitimacy and Over-Associations with Adjustment Differences in Parent, Firstborn and Secondborn Perspectives. Recently published in the Journal of Developmental Psychology by Dr. Nicole Campion Barr at the University of Missouri, Columbia and her colleagues, Anna Lindell, and Sonia Grian. These authors explored families with multiple children and changes in parental authority legitimacy over time and across kids. So you guys might be asking yourself, what is parental authority legitimacy? Uh, This is a great question because while we found this family research to be uh, very, very interesting, we also had not heard this term before, but like I said, we're very excited to learn new things. So parental authority legitimacy is the perception that the parents have the appropriate knowledge and expertise to regulate a particular issue. Now the authors point out that the prior research has found that the perception of parents having the type of expertise they need to be an authority in their child's life declined during adolescence. But that depends on the type of issue being parented. I can definitely directly relate to this because I remember that decline vividly in adolescence. Specifically, both parents and adolescents report decreases in their perceptions of their or their parents' authority legitimacy, especially for personal issues such as choice of friends or what to wear. And adolescents pretty consistently view their parents as having less authority than their parents themselves believe they have. And of course, that makes complete sense. The authors explain that this discrepancy likely reflects that parents think their children should defer to them as the primary authority figure in their home, whereas adolescents are thinking about what should be under their own control. Choices they should be able to make on their own as they get older and more mature. So in other words, the more an adolescent thinks they have decision-making control over how they do their hair or what they do on a Friday night, for example, the less likely they are to see their parents as having legitimate authority over that issue. The authors also explain that differences between adolescents' and parents' perception of parents' authority legitimacy are likely the largest in early adolescence, where parent-adolescent conflicts and negotiation is the greatest in regards to adolescence autonomy. But these perceptions should come more into line as parents and their kids start to recognize these adolescents as becoming more autonomous adults. However, all of their research on parental authority legitimacy so far has been done with only one adolescent in the family, which suggests that siblings perceive their parents' authority the same. From my personal experience, that was not true. These authors rightfully recognize the importance of family systems. Yay! Yay. So few people do. And that parent child relationships may function differently for each child, especially older adolescents versus younger siblings. We obviously agree with the importance of considering this whole family approach. Very excited, and we haven't really talked about any. Of of this kind of topic yet on the podcast. So Sarah, can you tell us more about how these researchers studied parental authority legitimacy across siblings and what did they find?
2: Yeah, so they did this really interesting and sounds like very novel, innovative data collection where they focused on collecting information instead of just from one child, from families with two or more kids and making sure to capture two siblings' perspectives. They also focused on adjustment. So they described that prior research as you just talked about Patricia looks at how these discrepancies in what adolescents and parents believe to be parents authority, legitimacy, these discrepancies in their agreement or disagreement rather, in their authority legitimacy over time Mm -hmm. can relate to problematic adjustment for kids, so this depression anxiety and behavior issues so they focused on both of these things, whereas the latter, that adjustment piece has been looked at in prior literature it hasn't been looked at in quite as much detail and hasn't been looked at in families with more than one child so they sampled 145 mostly white middle class families with two or more children and one parent at least who would participate of those 145 families 139 were moms so this study like a lot of developmental research suffers from a focus on mothers reports of their relationships with their kids and their own parenting they recruited these families from six different junior high and high schools so- you're saying,
0: sorry, so you're saying basically it lacks from father perspective.
2: It did, and I think that typically developmental research gives a few different reasons for that, but they included families that had at least one parent that was willing to participate. They did not need to be married, and they didn't exclude Mm -hmm. based on gender, so they ended up with what they ended up with, and there are lots of different reasons for that, but so they focused on their first born child being either in 8th, 10th, or 12th grade at the first wave. So they would capture these different cohorts of kids where the older sibling was in early, middle, or late adolescence. And then the second child was no more than five years younger. The average age difference between the two was between two and a half and three years, which is a really complicated sample to get if you think about it. So it's a family of at least three people and the oldest child has to be these very specific grade levels and their youngest child has to be no more than five years younger. That's a really complicated sample to walk away with 145 triads. So the first data collection they did was in a lab and then all the follow-up data was collected by online surveys. They did three time points each about a year apart. So there's four waves and 68% of the initial sample completed all of those four waves. So they had um, amazing retention. A pretty good retention rate. Yeah. Yeah. Four waves. Across multiple years. Across multiple years. So the kids who started in 12th grade would have been graduating college by the time they were completing this study. And the people that dropped out were more likely to be non-white and parents who weren't married. So probably an important limitation aside from just the sample to begin right. with. But so they asked these parents and their adolescents whether it was acceptable for parents to make a rule about and then ask them about 24 different issues in these different mm. domains that they described. So things like their manners, whether it was okay for them to make rules about drinking alcohol, when to clean their bedroom, and both the parents and each of the adolescent siblings rated whether it was okay, sometimes okay, not okay, so that then they could calculate the differences between how the adolescent scores these acceptability about making rules and how the parent scores whether it's acceptable. And they can do this at each of these four waves to track how parents think about their own authority over time, how these adolescents think about their authority authority over time and how the difference in how they think about their authority legitimacy can change over time.
0: Wow, that's amazing.
2: Yeah, which is really fascinating. And then at the fourth wave, they asked adolescents to rate their depression anxiety symptoms and also their externalizing symptoms, which is a term in the literature and also the mental health field that focuses on behavioral issues, so yeah. like cheating, stealing, vandalizing, drug use. And then they use some really complicated statistical modeling for those of you who will click the link that we give for this paper, that section in and of itself will take a while to digest. It's it's fantastically detailed. So they use latent growth curve modeling. So like I just described, and I'm sure you could describe better, Patricia. They looked at the changes in these perspectives over time.
0: Yeah, it's basically like estimating trajectories of change over time, but using very so fancy can, statistics.
2: So you could say right that they look not only at the first wave, their baseline. Right. And how that, that's different between parents and adolescents, but not just at how that's different at the end, but how that changes over the course of time one to time two, time two to time three, in order to create curves of how this change can happen. Right, curve
0: trajectories, yeah, of how, yeah. What, what that statistical number looks like in terms of that change over time. Yeah,
2: which is really cutting edge way to do this analysis, but also really much more reflective of how change occurs in real human life rather than just measuring something time one. And then especially in adolescence, thinking about doing that maybe four or five years later, you're a whole different person four or five years later.
0: Right. And what I like particularly about latent growth curve is it doesn't have to be like perfectly linear you can, especially between the, the time gaps, you can set it so it reflects different time gaps and you can also set it to where it's not perfectly linear, it could also be curva linear so that trajectory is not mm-hmm. just a perfect shoot up or down, it mm-hmm. maybe accelerates and then decelerates in, in terms of how it changes.
2: Mm. Which would be really important to ask the question, to, to try to answer the question they're asking here about how this changes over a period of really rapid development and right. that the differences between parents' perceptions of of their authority and adolescence perceptions is going to change over a short window of time as they develop through adolescence. They found lots of really very interesting stuff. Younger sisters reported higher perceptions of their their parents' authority legitimacy at all time points compared to their older sisters. Whereas among boys, younger brothers reported higher levels of perceiving their parents to have that authority legitimacy than older brothers only at the latter end of the study. Girls also reported greater perceptions of their parents being legitimately an authority figure, which is a better way to say it, maybe, than boys for what they termed as prudential issues, meaning things that possibly involve potential self-harm or risky behavior like drinking alcohol. Girls tended to think that their parents had more legitimate authority over those issues they could make rules about them. In terms of looking at the family and how this worked, for both adolescents and parents, their perceptions of their parents' authority legitimacy was higher for younger than older siblings, especially in regards to these personal issues. So how what I'm gonna wear, how I'm gonna do my hair, who my friends are, those are, those are rated higher for younger siblings than for older siblings. Older siblings tended to think, I'm gonna have more autonomy over this myself than my parents, they should probably stop making rules about that for me if I'm a firstborn, if I'm older. And parents and firstborn adolescents became increasingly discrepant in their beliefs about whether parents should be able to make rules about this over time. So it wasn't just that they rated it higher. They became increasingly different from each other if they were firstborn rather than secondborn. Interesting. Yeah. And what, so if they even just looked at baseline, the greater those discrepancies were at baseline, they found that interestingly, that connected to lower depression of symptoms but if adolescents and parents were very different from each other at baseline on like what they termed socially regulated issues so whether they should be able to make rules about how these adolescents use their manners for example that related to greater depression symptoms over time unless that discrepancy decreased over time so the more that parents and adolescents came in line with each other the less depression that adolescent reported at wave 4 so lots of really very interesting stuff that overall they found that if discrepancies between parents and adolescents decrease over time, their adjustment issues in general seem to be lower at time four, four years later. And the differences between those perceptions grew larger over those four years for firstborns only when related to those personal issues, the stuff that they especially think I should be able to make a decision over because this is really about me and who I am as a person. So for those firstborn parents, parents are maybe just not willing to let go of that control quite as readily as they might be willing to to do for the second born.
0: Yeah, because they've already experienced it with the second born.
2: Which I think is an important takeaway in terms of parenting teens. I mean, I think they reference in the paper that 80% of kids today grow up with a sibling. So this is important for most families, that parenting teens is not one size fits mm-hmm. all, that rules probably need to change over time and we need to allow kids to be able to increasingly self-regulate and have more autonomy over time that digging our heels in and having really different beliefs about that as our kids start to get more autonomous could really create some pretty serious problems over a shorter period of time and rules probably also need to change across kids so there were differences in the findings they had for the firstborns and the secondborn kids where the decrease in discrepancies related to like manners whether my parents can rules about my manners was important for firstborns but it was the decreases in the differences about our beliefs whether my parents should set rules around those prudential issues the drinking alcohol and some of those riskier behaviors that was more important for secondborns. and what we know about kids born later in a family is that they tend to be a little bit more rebellious they engage in a little bit more risky behavior. So it's going to be really important that rules potentially shift to recognize that change Mm. across families and also that it might be really important to be having open conversations and open communication with adolescents about what do I think as a parent I am supposed to or I have the authority to make some boundaries around and how do we shift those boundaries with time? What do you think you should have more autonomy or decision-making control about, because the more we talk about that, it's possible that the more our beliefs about our boundaries and our rules in this family can come into agreement. And if that's true and we're able to communicate about things and understand each other more, it's possible you could also shift some of these patterns and result in um, potentially fewer behavior problems over time for this really important age group of teenage kids. Right.
0: One thing I also really like about this is it basically normalizes this discrepancy in parent- legitimacy, mm-hmm. right? This is a kind of a normative developmental process that your teenager and you as a parent are going to have different opinions about what's who has the authority here and knowing it's developmentally appropriate also to work through that so you come to an agreement mm-hmm. as well.
1: I really enjoyed this paper, Sarah. I didn't jump in to the technical analyses as much I want to revisit it because they just seemed to put so much attention and so much effort yeah. to get the sample and it was just really, really impressive. Really, this is the type of research we need I think especially when we're thinking about families and family systems so cheers to them for doing that yeah I was yeah. also thinking too you know a lot of I've been reading more about parenting because of the impending child that we have
0: it's gonna be a um, lot impending, we, impending. We, Ooh, it sounds like a disease gonna, uh, you you're gonna it's gonna be a while before it's a teenager though yeah
1: so. yeah yeah, yeah. Okay. oh they don't come out like fully grown <laughs> no. oh man But, like, you have to change their
0: diapers for a real long time.
1: You know, there's a lot of emphasis, I think, in parenting about consistency and boundaries and rules. Right. And Mm -hmm. I think that what I liked about this is it shows that consistency isn't about holding the same rules from a time the person is in eighth grade to a time they're a senior in high school. Consistency is about providing predictability in support, in emotion, and predictability in flexibility. In other words, if I come to my parents and there's a discrepancy, I can trust that we can work this out, have more of that flexibility in setting these rules and regulations, and that my parents, will not it's not just necessarily a top-down system where I do think parents should have some legitimate authority over Mm -hmm. their kids as you know as as kids develop being able to some of that legitimate authority comes from parents being able to be flexible to being able to say oh yeah I don't need to worry about how my kid does their hair anymore they're 17 they can deal with that they can make that decision on their own hopefully before then but you know I think that when we think about consistency we shouldn't confuse that with rigidity this idea that once I make a rule, that rule stays in place and it never changes because that becomes where I think you could see some of these larger discrepancies coming that could result in internalizing and Mm -hmm. externalizing problems.
2: Yeah, I think that's a really smart way to break this down. I think what they showed is that over time, those differences in what they think about parents' authority decreases over time on the average, but when it doesn't decrease over the time, you probably do have some rigidity, inflexibility, and some failure to adapt to developmental norms, it is tip- it is very normal for kids as they become as they age to want more autonomy and to have open conversations and communication about that, where you can have some shared responsibility and talk about what that autonomy can look like in a way to bring some agreement about here's what I see, here's here's what you see, and here's where we can maybe make some compromise would be really really important, especially because the outcomes they're talking about are not minor. Yeah, right. Depression, anxiety and these behavioral issues that that's that's stuff that no parents would wish on their kids and if you could possibly mitigate some of that through communicate your thoughts and thinking about what each of you should have some say over it seems pretty doable
0: yeah i like it
2: Woohoo! Boo!
0: woo Yeah! Finally, time for good or bad advice, where we talk about pervasive relationship advice about friends, families, and romantic partners. We hear advice from parents, loved ones, and friends throughout our life, whether we're in adolescence or newlyweds or married forever. We see advice in movies and TV shows, and advice is spewed at us on social media, blogs, and articles. Polls all over the web. But a lot of it just isn't actually good relationship advice. This is the part of the show when we use science to decide if this advice is good or bad.
1: Good or bad. Good <laughs> or bad. Good Good or
0: bad. Or bad. That was really good, Jacob. Thanks. If you have seen or heard some advice about relationships you'd like us to talk about, send it in. You can leave us a message at 865-229-6775. Email us at attachedpodcast at gmail.com or tweet us at attachedpodcast. Or you can go to our lovely website, attachpodcast.com, and send us a message. While you're at it and you're in the, the mode of being on the World Wide Web, please share our podcast, rate it, leave a review. We would love it. This week, the advice is for preparing for summer vacation. As we inch closer and closer to summer vacation, I thought that this would be appropriate So this article is from Messy Motherhood. It's called Enjoy Summer Break Without Losing Your Ever-Lovin' Mind. There are five tips. Are you guys ready? Yeah. Okay, point one. Plan out adventures and downtime. It's summer time for adventures and fun. Sit down with your family and plan out your cool summer adventures. Create a summer bucket list. Decide what everyone wants to do and get Everything onto a calendar, but don't forget to plan out downtime as well. Everyone needs some space in their day to relax and be bored. Good or bad advice? I'm
1: going to say good advice. I think it can be a good thing to have structure, but also flexibility. I think kids can value being able to look forward to something that comes up. I also think that even though you're scheduling out downtime, be flexible. It may that you have something on the calendar and it may not work that day. Something might come up, something might happen. And I think it's good too to prepare kids for that eventuality and allow them to know like, hey, this is what we're going to plan on doing. If it doesn't work, we'll, we'll try something else.
0: Sure. Sure.
1: But I also like this idea of boredom. Like, I feel like it can be important to be bored sometimes. I think creativity can come from boredom. I remember growing up as a kid when we would kind of had nothing to do and we figured out a game to play with my siblings, it it being a lot of fun. So yeah, I'm going to say good advice.
0: Okay, good advice. What's... So I
2: agree with Jacob. Um, What? What? I know (laughs) what? I
0: think, I mean, I'm not that obstinate. (laughs) Some might say that Jacob is the obstinate one.
1: Some might say that.
0: Let's not reframe this or negatively frame this. That's right. So I, I think
2: it's good advice. I think prioritizing flexibility, I there's not this is not like an evidence-based suggestion. I would not I just I would not personally plan out all of my adventures for the summer. But I think creating a list of things that you want to do and want to accomplish can't hurt. So I think it could especially help young kids when they have visuals that they themselves get to help create that involve things that they can maybe do each day when there is downtime, and also a list of things things that they want to do to have fun over the summer so that they get to refer to it. It helps give them a little bit more autonomy and a little bit more involvement in those family conversations. And those things are really good for child development.
0: Absolutely. And based on the article we just read talking about siblings, I think making sure that each sibling has multiple items on that bucket list and has some a voice and choice mm-hmm. in that too. Yeah, I, I agree. Good advice. But mom, I'm bored. Are you ready to hear that a bazillion times a day? This is the worst. Sure, there's screen time, but too much of it can cause irritable and frustrated kids. Plus it's summer. It's time for running around barefoot in the grass, build forts and create memories that last a lifetime. After all, kids don't remember their best day of television. So let your kids be bored. Good or bad advice.
1: Well, I'm gonna push back a little bit. Because I think the evidence is mixed when it comes to screen time and irritability and frustration with kids. I think that there's this colloquial pop culture, like, oh, kids who are in front of screens aren't socializing together, aren't...
0: Pop psychology, yeah. Yeah,
1: like, I just don't... The evidence is more mixed than that, I think. So I would push back on that part of this, but. Isn't there
0: also evidence that screen time specifically for children with anxiety can help reduce their anxiety? Or is that adults?
1: That, I don't know. I'd have to, uh... I'd have to fact check that one.
0: Fact check me. Sounds good.
1: <laughs> like... I do think, and I said this before, it's okay for kids to be bored and to put the onus on them to come up with something creative and fun. If kids want to engage in screen time, I think that is also okay to put boundaries around. But also we demonize things like playing video games when in fact kids can socialize through that. Like if they're playing with somebody or playing like next to somebody or virtually with somebody I think that can be a way for people to connect and you can also have good memories around that so I yeah, don't Yeah and I lo- also
0: feel like this advice about running outside barefoot in the grass also kind of assumes that everybody lives in yeah. suburbia with a yes. giant background backyard yes. which yes. is not yes. the
1: case So I the ethos of this of like it's okay the for ethos? your kids t- the it's what? okay for your kids to be bored I don't even know if I'm using that word correct in this Listen. in this sense I just said it with, (laughs) I just said it with authority, (laughs) Authority. like, you know, but I do think that it's okay for kids to be bored and let them kind of sit with that and learn how to deal with that and learn how to manage that. But again, this idea that screens are bad, isn't supported by the evidence in the black and white way that it's actually, it's often portrayed.
0: So good advice, caveat about Science, yes. some may say. Woods. Yeah,
2: I think that would also be my conclusion. I think it's not necessarily bad advice, but it is pretty I'm gonna focus not on the screen time piece that Jacob pulled out, but on the privilege piece that you just pointed right. out. That boredom is something that can prompt people, including kids but also adults, to pursue new and different activities. But those activities, I think, I think research suggests are not always positive so while the author of this kind of advice may be talking about young children who are at home and in like safe parentally monitored situations with gorgeous beekeeping farms in their backyard. and
0: uh, hey, are you I suggesting unprivileged? I am, I'm sorry. Yeah, you're <laughs> correct, you're correct.
2: Or that your children are bored. I wasn't necessarily suggesting either of those things. But I think there's some evidence that shows that boredom can also uh, be a prompt for people to... S- Search out negative activities or other kinds of problematic activities and can be context dependent. So, I am certain that the person who wrote this advice did not remotely intend to go that far and that deep, but that's why we are a yeah. science based project. Exactly.
0: And I think research also would suggest that most unwanted teen pregnancies happen between the hours of three and five when, you know, maybe they're bored and there's no parental monitoring.
1: Oh, is that real? I, I didn't know that. I didn't.
0: I didn't know that either. Yeah, I mean, unfortunately, both of these two pieces of research I'm bringing up, I don't have any citations for, <sighs> so I should probably remedy that. But I agree with your point. You know, boredom is not necessarily always something that can lead to positive, fun, frolicking in in fields. Yeah. Though it can, I think those rules and boundaries still mm. need to be in place around you are bored, and these are your opportunities these are the the opportunities you have around you, or these are the appropriate things, that choices you could make.
2: I think, yeah, I think that there could be some structure and boundaries around that. And allowing children the independence and autonomy to solve some of their own problems is really, really important. And also, this is very developmentally varied and very context dependent. And so not science-based advice, period, and also not advice that I would give to everybody.
0: Everyone does chores. It's amazing how dishes, laundry, and clutter pile up over the summer with everyone home all day long. There's just so much more to do with less time to do them because all of the fun adventuring during the day. But the good thing is that there are more hands to help with chores. Find a summer chore system that works for you and your family and get the kids to help. Good or bad advice.
1: So a couple of thoughts before I come down, because I kind of I'm mulling this over in my head and I feel about this a a couple of ways. First, I think often chores are met with that rigidity that we talked about in, you know, in when we were talking about the article, like, oh, right. If you don't have this done by this time in this way, this is the consequence. Right. Correct. And I often think that if I applied that to my work responsibilities, <laughs> I would be meeting a lot of consequences, right? Because most well, of us don't work on that type of...
0: But you did, Jacob, because you had to submit tenure. And yes, you did have to get those papers in. And yes, you do have to get that R&R in. Yeah, and yes, well... yes, you do have to get those grades in for your students. But, there,
1: but yeah, but those are also flexible in the time and way that I do them, right? And I think it's okay to provide that same flexibility with your kids, right? So I like this last part of the advice. I don't think you read it where she says like chores can be fun and you can find a way to make those activities that aren't just you have to do this or else. I don't think that that type of engagement is ever very motivating. So while I think chores are useful for teaching kids responsibility, True. I also believe that there needs to be flexibility in in the outcome and manner in which they are accomplished, right? So if you're saying, hey, I need you to do this, and then you're saying, oh, it's got to be done in the next 15 minutes or else, I don't know if that's necessarily going to get you the results you want. So she doesn't say that, but I tend to extrapolate that. Maybe that's my own family of origin stuff when it comes to chores. So not
0: necessarily based in research.
1: Yeah, so overall, I'm going to say good advice. But with caveats.
0: Good good but with caveats. Uh, a good Which afterwards. is
1: really is really me beyond the beyond fence. fence, fence Trying right.
0: not to <laughs> Woods.
2: I think this is good advice. Again, I think it, it's important to be developmentally appropriate. I agree that there should be some flexibility in this. It also allows young children to contribute in ways that they can find really meaningful. And so I think it's important that the expectations around chores for parents be really clear. That if you're expecting children of all ages to participate in chores in a way that feels like they're actually getting better, done and you're going to feel good about it like it's been done to your own standard (laughs) that's an unreasonable expectation but if you're teaching young children or even early adolescent children how to do some of these chores you're going to have to show them do it with them You're going to have to be really clear about your instructions. You're going to have to not scrutinize them. You're going to have to give lots of positive feedback as opposed to negative feedback or critical feedback. And that is more about, I think, engendering the role of being part of an engaged family as opposed to checking off chores to get them done in a way that at the end of the day, you're going to look around and think like, Oh my house is as clean as if I'd hired help for this. Um, I just I don't think that that's I would just have right. that coffee yeah, about that expectation. But I do think it can be a really helpful way for kids to participate, especially if those chores are not gender divided, like right. much yeah. of the housework labor yes. research would suggest that it is. Yeah,
0: absolutely. And and I think having those expectations about the reason for the chores given to, to your children, you know, the, the chores are given not necessarily to keep the children occupied, or though I guess it, it could be, but you know, chores have a reason, you know, you clean up your toys, because you just made a giant mess, right? So you clean up your room after your toys because that's your responsibility. Right. Explaining why we do things and understanding the point of chores and you set the table because that's your responsibility for the family getting ready for dinner and everybody has a part to play in this family system for for food, right? Not just like, you do this because I said so. Though, I mean, occasionally that is (laughs) something you have to say. So don't beat yourself up if that's just what you are saying, but throughout your time parenting take some time to explain it every once in a while When you well
2: yeah i think that's what you said it better than what i was trying to say i think it there's there's research evidence that suggests involving especially young right. kids in chores can build that pro-social behavior and that contributing to right. others and this sense of being part of something bigger than myself as well as feeling competent and developing that sense of
0: self-efficacy which is really important for kids absolutely so good advice Use the all powerful play date. Get together with friends and plan play dates. Drop off your kids at friends' houses. Yes. And in exchange, she can drop off her kids, but also his kids, off with you another afternoon. This way, you'll get some free time in your run kid-free errands. When the kids are with you, they will be more than likely to entertain each other, so you can get some of the work done that has been piling up around the house. It is a win-win. Playdates, good or bad advice?
1: I'm going to say good advice. I don't know if there's any research that looks specifically at yeah. playdates, but we do know that there's lots of research around friendships and the importance of friendship across right. the lifespan so yeah and if it's also can be a structured so you can as an adult have some kid-free time and this is a possibility among your social support network i think it's a great idea so good advice yep good advice
2: I agree also good advice even though I think for me personally it's not my favorite I tend to be more introverted play dates involve also some parent socialization <laughs> that's not always my preferred I think it, it is a really kind of typical way that kids connect and come interact socially that can be really important out of school I think there's also opportunities to build in some social skills and social norms parenting in these playdates, that they can be totally hands-off, and also that it gives you the opportunity to have that social behavior occurring in front of you that you can't have when your kid goes to school in a way that as a parent or a family member, you can help to kind of model or moderate some of those social interactions
0: absolutely good advice the one caveat to this is that it talks about you know you have free time to do work around the house that maybe you didn't have time to do also you can go get your nails done you can just sit and watch tv you can sit and stare at the walls you don't have to be productive during this time in my humble opinion Agreed. Okay, last but not least, prepare for meltdowns, because there will be meltdowns. Summer is fun. It means full days spent outside in the sun, playing, running, and melting in the heat. But fun-filled days often end in either a child melting down or a parent losing their cool, or usually both. Long de- days mean you and your child end up physically and emotionally drained. Jesus, what's happening on these days? <laughs> So it's not uncommon for parents to end up yelling and for kids to end up crying. Jacob, good or bad advice?
1: So I think it's good advice to expect for meltdowns. I'm a 38-year-old dude, and I still have meltdowns, so I think it's okay.
0: (laughs) Is it because you didn't get your popsicle?
1: Yes, exactly. (laughs) So I think it's okay to have meltdowns and to expect and prepare for them. I don't think that that is bad advice at all. I do think it is important to think about how you respond to the meltdown and what it means, and if it is something that is happening frequently and maybe to large extent what that could mean to for right. what things may need to be shifted or what's going on in your family system or for your kid or for whatever so it can also be a sign of like hey maybe things aren't going well but a lot of the time a meltdown is just a meltdown it's just a meltdown so i'm gonna say good advice expect to have meltdowns most of the time they're not bad if they're concerning if a meltdown is getting concerning maybe it's something to look at but most of the time a meltdown is a meltdown.
2: So, good advice. Woods. Good advice. I want to say bad advice. I mean, I think it's totally fine to emotionally prepare yourself for your kid might struggle because there's less structure. Maybe I'm not sure why this piece of advice would need to be read in order for you to know that that might be true or might be coming. But I, when you reacted, Patricia, in the reading, it of like, God, what's happening during these families? Why are they so drained at the end of the day? That's my reaction. If you are pursuing days and activities with your family where you are having to prepare for the meltdown at the end, let me just advise you to rearrange the plans for your day <laughs> right. so that your kids don't get so overstimulated and you get so exhausted that all of you are sobbing before bedtime. That didn't need to happen. You could pull back a little bit, structure your day to be more appropriate for developmental norms. And also, I just want to say that meltdown is a term that's used a lot in autism spectrum disorders. And so those parents have to work really, really hard to think about how they're child is exposed to all of these sensory changes and all the changes in schedules and changes in their rituals and routines and meltdowns are experienced for some of those parents, is really distressing. And for some of those kids, too, is really distressing. And so I think just deciding ahead of time, like, oh, my kid's just going to melt down at the end of this, is a luxury that those families don't necessarily have. So although, again, I realize this author did not intend to go this far or this deep, this reads a little bit privileged for me in terms of this doesn't recognize the variety of families and the kids that they parent. And it's something that I think we haven't, heard a lot about in this lockdown period and now summer will shift that these kids that have additional educational needs in terms of speech therapy and occupational therapy and physical therapy have lost out entirely so I think it's just not necessarily a luxury that all families have to just decide well this is coming let's just go to parade number seven for the week or well probably (laughs) not because summer parades are probably done but (laughs) Um, (laughs) I mean I just I just think it's helpful to also acknowledge that this is something that Hopefully, could be mitigated for some families, and for other families, they don't necessarily have the option, uh, or and or always have to be on to work to mitigate this.
0: So, bad advice and a yeah. good advice. Yeah, I I think that.
1: Oh, is Patricia it- gonna be on the fence? Patricia's gonna be on the fence. No. <laughs>
0: Well, and I mean, I think Jacob kind of alluded to it, too. Like, if you're just trying to pack so much into one day, manage those expectations, that plan that you made for the summer way, way back where we said it was good advice in the beginning. Let's change that around a little bit. Let's have a little bit more downtime. Plan for downtime. Maybe you need to plan for a little bit more downtime so you know good and bad advice she ends this blog by saying summer should be amazing which just blows out all expectations (laughs) that just made me anxious just thinking that summer has to be amazing like also you could just survive it and that's perfectly acceptable too
2: especially this summer
0: freaking real thanks for listening to attached remember call us email us or tweet us about any relationship advice you've received that you're wondering whether to follow or pass we cannot wait to talk about